If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Been working through 2 Corinthians for a few months here. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Likely all of you have these uh, certain topics that you know to avoid in, in certain situations. So maybe if you have a, a family gathering, you know not to bring up a certain topic with your crazy uncle. And maybe his uncle drunkle drinks a little too much and you just don't bring things up to him because he start going off on, on some huge rant. So for, for your lives, maybe, maybe it's, it's politics right now. It's this hot button issue and you know that when you get around certain people, don't bring up certain candidates or certain topics because then it's so awkward for everybody because they have a certain line of thought and rant that they want to go on when you go there. Maybe it's, it's, it's another family member that they have a bad relationship with and you, you don't want to bring, don't mention that name when you're around them because that will make everything very, very awkward for everybody. Likely there's a, a crazy uncle in your family where that, that is true. But we all have those kind of places that are kind of the, the crazy uncle places that are, that are inside of us, that are in our hearts, that, that we want to avoid. There are certain topics and, and subjects that we want to keep away from because we know when we bring it up, it, it brings up some awkwardness. It might bring up something that, that's hard and difficult for us, and so we try to avoid them as much as possible. And it seems like so often in our culture, one of those places that we like to avoid and that we don't like to talk much about is this topic of money. And, and one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons why we like to avoid this topic and, and it's awkward when we bring it up and, and people are very uh, quiet and are not very open and vulnerable with how they spend their money, how they use their money, how they give their money is, is likely because there's more going on than just we don't want to know or other people to know what we're doing with our money. Likely what's happening in most of our hearts is that there's some sin down there. There's some idolatry attached to this, and so we tried to stay away from it to avoid the awkwardness because we know there's, it's not just awkwardness, there's, there's deeper problems there that need to be addressed. And so here's what we want to do is, is that we're going to go right into this awkward topic of money, um, as the Bible does. And, and what we want is we want the Bible to address that place, that, that place that we, we try to steer clear of most of the time in our lives. And we want the, the Scripture to instruct us there. We want it to, to lead us and guide us there. And the next two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is going to meet this topic head on. And so let's let the, let's let the Scripture speak in. Let's, let's open up the awkwardness. Let's open up those, those dark places. Let's speak to, to the, the crazy uncles in our hearts and hear what the Word of God has to say. Because ultimately you can't avoid it, right? Paul's just this one guy. He's kind of a jerk that he keeps going after those issues that we don't want him to talk about. These four are good. So let's let the scripture speak into that. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to ask you to, to speak into our unbelief, to address the idols that are in our hearts. And we ask those things not so that we can just root them out, but we want to be planted deep in there, the grace of God. And so I pray that that transaction would happen in our lives this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to encourage the Corinthians to give generously in response to God's grace. He's encouraging this, this grace-filled, generous giving through these Corinthians and through their church. And their giving is, is going to go to a specific thing. He's, he's talked about this before in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Their giving is going to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 8 as well. This is the relief effort that he is leading forward for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, what's going on in Jerusalem, we're not 100% sure of. Jerusalem, the surrounding area, would have been under some turmoil in different ways. There's likely a famine, so, so maybe that was going on. They didn't, they didn't have enough supply. They, they had some needs that needed met physically. But also what's going on, as we see in the book of Acts, is that Corinth, or Christians were being pushed to the margins. They were pushed on the outside. They were starting to be persecuted, not just kind of in a little ways. They were being persecuted to the point of death. Many Christians were dying and being dispersed throughout the area. And so there's, there's famine and there's persecution with the Christians on the margin, and they need relief. They need help. And so Paul is calling on these Corinthians to give to, to support the saints in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, to relieve them. Now, how do you go about getting support? How do you go about raising funds to relieve the saints? 
If we were to do this now, we'd do it in a couple different ways. We'd, we would have some really, really tear-jerking video. We would have violins playing in the background. We would show pictures of the, the scenes of horror that, that are out in Jerusalem. But how does Paul do this? Now, Paul begins not with a sad story and, and violins playing. He begins instead with a faithful example of generous giving. If you look in verse 1 and 2. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These churches of, of Macedonia would have included the, the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Berea. And, and what he says about these churches is that the grace of God is evident in these churches. The grace of God is evident there. And I think that that's key because we don't want to just pass through this grace of God. The grace of God is God's one-way love for, for people, for humanity, for sinful human beings. It's this gift that's given and bestowed upon people who haven't deserved it or haven't earned it and that can't return it. This is grace, and this grace is evident in these churches. What has happened here is that the grace of God has broken into their darkness, it has broken into their sinfulness, it has broken into their hardened hearts, and it's rescued them out of those things. It's rescued them out of a life lived for themselves. It's rescued them out of a life lived to some other idols. It has pulled them out of sin and death and darkness and rescued them and brought them into the light. But the grace that saves and the grace that saved these Christians and these churches in Macedonia is also the grace that changes. It doesn't just save them and then let them be however they want. It changes them and transforms them. It saves them and it keeps working inside of them. And here's the grace of God and how it is working. It's working, he says, in the midst of their affliction and in their poverty. And yet in the midst of their great affliction, with if you read Philippians and, and the Thessalonian letters and these other things that we see in the book of Acts, they were under some, some serious affliction. People were persecuting them. Life wasn't easy for them. They have affliction and then they have extreme poverty. And yet the grace of God is at work in them and it's still producing this an amazing, abundant joy. Now, we can know from that that because they have joy in the midst of extreme poverty and because they have joy in, in, in affliction, that their joy isn't tied to either their circumstances or their finances. That there's, there's a deeper root to their joy than just the things that are surrounding them and the, just the things that are material. Their joy is rooted in the grace of God that they've received that saved them and is changing them. And by the grace of God, their abundant joy is overflowing in a wealth of generosity, he says. If I were to put this up on a formula, they have extreme poverty and extreme affliction, persecution, problems, struggles. Would you think that there would be joy mixed in there? And would you think that that uh, equation would come out to equal overflowing generosity on their part? It's not an obvious conclusion to what's going on in their lives. They have this poverty and affliction, and most of the time, those things don't lead to this generosity in our minds. But the grace of God does. And the grace of God is at work in their affliction. It's at work in their poverty. It's at work in them producing this joy that overflows, erupts into generous giving. Their generosity is not of human origin. The Macedonian churches didn't look inside themselves and say, you know what, I am generous after all, I would love to give to this. No, the grace of God saved them and worked in them and out through them to overflowing in this generosity. It was fueled by the grace of God that they'd received. So their overflow of generosity, which is their financial giving, is, is tangible evidence of the grace of God in their lives. Verse 3 says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Tangible evidence of the grace of God. They are overflowing in generosity. Now, I think that what we could see in the text here is that their situation might have been so rough might have been, there might have been so much poverty and affliction there that Paul doesn't even ask them to take part in this relief effort. He asked the Corinthians, we saw that in 1 Corinthians, but he may not have directly asked these Macedonian churches, and yet still something is going on here. They are begging for the opportunity to be a part of this. 
Now, giving certainly involves more than just finances, but in this chapter, he's talking about money. And they are begging for the opportunity to give financially to this effort, even, he says, beyond their means. So they, they wanted to give generously, but they wanted to go be above and beyond. It's kind of what he's saying, beyond their means. And this wasn't coerced. Paul didn't kind of bring in this sob story for them. They are freely asking him. He didn't give them a guilt trip. They are begging to take part of what's going on here, to generously give. And in fact, this is clear in this passage, is that they considered it a grace to them to be able to give. They wanted, it says, the favor to be able to give to the relief of the saints. They are saying, we want grace given to us. It is a grace to us to be able to give generously, even beyond our means, to be part of this. And so these Macedonians, they, they wanted to give. It wasn't coercive. They wanted to do this. They desired to give. They were begging to give. It was their joy, and it was beyond even what Paul expected. Verse 5 says, and this is not as we expected. They gave of themselves first to the Lord by the will of God to us. It was beyond even what Paul would have expected of them. But here's why. Their primary commitment wasn't to Paul. Their primary commitment wasn't to the saints in Jerusalem, although those were there. Their primary commitment was to the Lord. And if God has your heart, the rest is going to follow. If you love God supremely, as these Macedonians love God supremely, then they are begging for the opportunity to give. Their, their outworking of that is following from their full commitment to the Lord. There's this famous quote given to, kind of from Augustine is where it seems to have come from. He says, Love God and do as you please. And that sounds crazy to us because we know how sinful we are or how sinful humanity are if you think you're really good. You're like, they're, they're sinful. We can't just tell them to do whatever they want. Well, that's true. We are very, very sinful. But what he's getting at there is that if we love God supremely above all other things, then as we do as we please, what we're going to do is we're going to try to show the love of God. We're going to try to live in light of this love of God to, to show him, display him, to be an honor and a glory to him. So love God and do as you please. And what they pleased as they're loving God supremely is to give generously even beyond their own means because their commitment is fully to the Lord. So Paul is writing. He's writing to encourage these Corinthians to give the same kind of grace-filled, generous giving. He says in verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he would complete among you this act of grace, this act of giving generously, to the relief effort. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. So Paul is calling these Corinthians to this grace-filled, generous giving, kind of following in and being encouraged by the example that the Macedonian churches have, have set. This is a unique way to do this, and, and it's important how he does this. He encourages them by an example, but it's not just the Macedonians that he's holding up and highlighting. What he's highlighting here is very important. He's highlighting the grace of God that's at work in these churches, and there's a big difference between the two. So he's encouraging them to give. He's encouraging them this grace-filled, generous giving. He's encouraging them by highlighting the grace of God. If you want to motivate giving, we, we know how to do this, right? There are some ways to do this. You can highlight how desperate the situation is, right? There's commercials on TV that show horrible little cats and dogs that are dying and look horrible, and it's like every hour a dog dies by ne neglect and abuse, right? You've seen these. It's sad. You don't like to see things like that. That can help raise money. You can uh, use some guilt, there's this, uh, a couple different, you know, organizations that use this. They will show you this, this desperate child who's just crying, looks skinny and pale, and like, all you got to do is just give up 50 cents a day so that this child can eat. Or, or give up that cup of coffee. And, and what they're doing is they're really playing with guilt. They're guilting you into giving. And, and you know what? That works. It works. Look around, like it works. It will get people to give. People will give to those efforts. But here's the reality is that that will not ever be sustained. It might work for a time, but guilt will never be able to sustain generosity. Now, I like what one pastor says. He says this, guilt produces a dramatic knee-jerk reaction, but the human spirit has mechanisms for getting beyond guilt. We assuage it by comparing ourselves positively with others. We rationalize our indulgences. We numb ourselves to others' pain. 
You have experienced this in your life. Like you've been guilted into giving at times, maybe even here at Sojourn, and yet it didn't last. Because it won't last. Because we can start looking around like, I give more than them, so I don't need to give generously this week. Or we just grow numb to others' pains. When we give out of guilt, we give only enough to make the guilt bearable. 10%, is that what the Bible says? I think that's 10%. So I'll give 10% and then I'll be okay with the guilt that I have about giving. And I'll just be done with that problem and can move on. Another way that we like to use to, to raise support and funds that seems to be a good way to motivate people to give is, is very prominent in our world today is the promise of blessing. The promise of blessing. So it would say, if you, if you give generously, then God will bless you in return. Materially, even specifically. God will bless you in return. It will come back on you tenfold, sevenfold, whatever people will say. And that gets people to give. That motivates giving, does it not? Look around. There are some churches that work off of this and they are large. But this won't be able to be sustained either. This will not sustain generous giving at all. Because you run into this roadblock so often. It's this unmet, un, unmet expectations. Where you think like, God is going to give in return to what I've given, and then all of a sudden you go along life and you're not getting what you expected. And so all of a sudden your generous giving falls off. Or you run into this roadblock called suffering, which is a, a common human experience where you think that if you just give, 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 God is going to give me so much in return. And then you end up like Job, who is just almost thinking that I want to die. This life is horrible. What is going on here? It won't ever sustain generosity. Guilt and the promise of blessing might make us think for a time that we should give, but those things will never make us want to give. And Paul knows that the most generous givers, the most generous people are those who are first receivers. And so what does he do here? He speaks of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that is at work in them. And so one author has said that open-handed generosity flows from glad-hearted reception. In the book of Luke, we see this story of Jesus as he's going through Jericho. Luke chapter 19. It says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus uh, see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when he saw it, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Tax collectors were scum of scum. Zacchaeus is the scum of the earth in people's minds. And Jesus singles him out and goes to his house. And you don't do those kind of things. Not if you're a prominent man in their society. He's gone to be with a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus did not deserve to be singled out that day. Zacchaeus did not deserve the invitation that Jesus gives to him to go to his house. <laughs> Come down, I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus didn't deserve that. He is the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus singles him out and visits him. And what does Zacchaeus do? He receives him first joyfully. Salvation, grace is visiting the house of Zacchaeus and he receives it joyfully. And from that he gives. First he received Jesus joyfully. Then he was motivated by grace to give to others joyfully. The Macedonians were first recipients. It says in verse 1, the grace of God was given to them. And that grace saved them and it changed them. It transformed their lives and it motivated their generosity to these churches in Jerusalem. It produced in them this abundance of joy. They were glad-hearted recipients before they were generous givers. 
They were recipients of the grace of God. And here's the truth for us, is that God has extended the same amazing grace to us as well. Today, like we are being invited as Zacchaeus was like, come and see, listen to the grace of our God. Look at how amazing this really is. It's extravagant, it's lavish, it's outrageous, and it's free. And it's offered out to us who are scum of scum, sinners, rebellious to our God, and he invites us in. And our response as sinners should be, if the God of the universe would extend to us grace, it should be to receive it with joy. Not to say, you know what, I haven't done anything to earn this visit from you, Jesus. Let me go figure that out. Or not, no, well, you don't understand my house isn't clean yet. Let me go get it in order and then you can come. No, Zacchaeus should be so amazed and we should be so amazed that Jesus wanted to visit us and extend grace to us that we just receive it. I've heard this illustration before. It's really good. If I were to give you a million dollar check, what would you do? Would you, would you say, you know, Hold on a second. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to hold on to that. So let me go get those little hand gripper things. We'll just work my hands out for a little while so I can grab a hold of that check. No, you don't need to do that to grab a hold of a check. Like a one-year-old can hang on to a million-dollar check and put it where it needs to go. And this is, this is what we try to do so often is, is grace is extended to us and we're trying to work our hands out to grab a hold of it. When Jesus just saying, no, you just receive it freely. This is the grace of God that has been extended to us. And it doesn't just save us. It also changes us and transforms us and sends us out. So if we are glad-hearted recipients of the grace of God, this one-way love from God, then that grace should motivate our generous giving. Our reception of grace should be evidence in our response to grace by our generous giving. So once again, the pastor says, remembering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does more to compel generosity than a hundred sermons that pummel you with guilt or inspire you with promises. And Paul doesn't do that. He is inspiring them with the grace of God. He is putting before them a gracious example. And in the response, in response to the grace of God that he has given to us, we are to generously give to others. Grace-filled, generous giving is tangible evidence that we are glad-hearted recipients of the grace that God has extended. It's tangible evidence of the grace of God in our lives. So if we're not generous givers, then perhaps we're not glad-hearted recipients. And we probably need to start there first rather than going to the how-to of giving. First, we must be glad-hearted recipients before we can be generous givers. And so have you experienced and received the grace of God? If we're not generous givers, maybe we don't understand the grace that we've received. Maybe we've underestimated it. Maybe we've thought of it less than what it actually is. Paul wants to motivate generosity, but he does it by reminding them of the greatness of God's grace. And he shows them through this Macedonians how it's working out in their lives. How they're giving, even in their poverty, they're giving generously, even beyond their means. The grace of God should work itself out to prove, he says, their earnestness and their love. In verse eight, he says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Their love should be and could be made clear by their generous, grace-filled giving to others. And it's beautiful to see this example of the Macedonians who in their extreme poverty are generously giving of themselves and of their finances for the good of others. But that's just the appetizer. And Paul turns, he ups his game and he turns to the main course that is Jesus Christ in verse 9. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus displays his love and his grace. He's proving those things genuine. He's displaying it to the world by graciously giving, by generous giving. And on verse 9, I think we have a similar formula to what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, he who knew no sin became sin. So we had him who knew no sin, and then we have us who do and have known sin. 
He became sin for us so that we might be made righteous. And here we kind of have the same thing. He was rich and we are poor is the implication. And yet he became poor that we might become rich. That's what's going on in verse 9. He set aside his riches becoming poor. So Jesus had it all. He is in heaven enjoying this great inter-Trinitarian relationship with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. Mind-blowing. Receiving the glory and the honor and the praise in genuine fellowship and relationship with the Trinity that he deserves and is due. And he takes that and out of that goodness and desire to share this love and this greatness that exists between them creates this world that rejects him. He was rich, had it all in his rightful place, and becomes poor. Puts that aside. So Jesus comes saying, blessed are the poor, that the the actual material poor, showing his great care and love for the poor that's consistent throughout Scripture. But he does, he goes further than that. He identifies with the poor. He becomes one of them. So Jesus was born in a stall. That's where animals eat. Wasn't born in the palace. Wasn't born where kings are born. He's born in a stall. And he wasn't born in the great cities. He didn't go to Rome. He wasn't even in Jerusalem. He was in this small town, kind of insignificant, called Bethlehem. And he isn't this prominent politician or this great conquering king. He's a carpenter. And he doesn't get all these great princes of the world and great minds around the universe to to come and be his followers. He picks fishermen and tax collectors. And, And when he is kind of going on his final journey, riding into Jerusalem, knowing that he's the son of God and the son of man, he doesn't come in with this huge parade and this war horse of of triumph. He comes in on a donkey. He's identifying with the poor. But he goes further than that. He became poor by suffering. And not just any kind of suffering. Not just normal human suffering, although he had that. He suffers on the cross. Becoming obedient to a criminal's death. This is what you do with the worst of the people on the earth, is that you put them on a tree, you hang them on a cross, and Jesus, although he is God of gods, created the very people that are trying to kill him, humbles himself to being obedient to that kind of death. And he doesn't do this because he had to. This is grace-filled, generous giving, showing and proving his genuine love for others. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to give 10% to this. I'm going to give my 10% effort to this world and to sinners. How about 10% of my blood? Let's draw that out. He doesn't do that. He gives of himself fully. And what does it say? For your sake. He was motivated by love. It wasn't Do I have to do this, God? Do you think this is the right way? It was, can I go? He was willing to do what it takes to make many rich. That's what he's doing. Even become poor, even to the point of death on a cross. He was willing to do that to make many people rich. He wanted the poor to have the inheritance so much that he was willing to die. He wanted them to have the inheritance of life that he was willing to give of his life that they might have it. And by his poverty, the poor become rich. And Paul calls for an exam, or a response to this grace. In verse 10, he says this and, this, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to also desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completing, completing it out of what you have. Respond to this generous grace that Jesus has shown us. This is the gospel applied to life. This is the gospel being worked out in the everyday activities of humanity. Receive this grace that Christ has extended to you to make you rich and then live in light of it. Give generously. Generous giving doesn't gain these Corinthians some sort of higher standing. Here's what he's saying. You already are rich. You have the higher standing. You're not giving to get it. You've already received it. Now give in response to what you've given, been given. He says to them that this grace ought to make them want to give. They ought to desire, it says, to do this. And that is so important. 
that they desire to do it. They're not just doing it because Paul says so. They desire to do it because they've received this grace of God and they desire to do something about it. This is the proper response to the grace of God. This is the evidence that grace is in our lives, this response in generous, grace-filled giving. Likely most of you have heard of this guy named John Bunyan. John Bunyan is famous for writing a book that you should probably read called The Pilgrim's Progress. He's written lots of other stuff, but that's kind of one of the most well-known And John Bunyan was a a faithful man to the gospel. And because he was being faithful to the gospel and to the scripture, the religious establishment of his day put him in prison. Like, not the riffraff, not the scum of the earth, like religious establishment said, you can't do this anymore, and they threw John Bunyan in prison. And here's one of the things that they said to him. They said, you cannot be going around assuring Christians of God's unswerving love for them. Like, Don't assure them that God loves them no matter what. Because they said this, if you keep assuring the people of God's love, they'll do whatever they want. They wanted to control. And John Bunyan's response is this, if I assure God's people of his love, then they will do whatever he wants. This is Paul's point, right? See the grace of God, receive the grace of God, see his love proved, see his grace poured out, and then live in response to that. You're being assured by Paul, the Corinthians are being assured of God's love for them, his grace to them, and he's saying, now do whatever he wants. Look at how he's proven his love for you. He's graciously and generously given of his own life for you, proving his great love for you. Now respond to that grace. Believers are to make the love and grace of Jesus evident in their lives, at least in part by generous giving to others. And so have you first received that grace? See, here's, here's what's happening in, in verse 9 is, is that Jesus is rich and we're the poor. We're the needy. We're the desperate. And, and that bothers us, doesn't it? Does that bother you? Because we're, we're in this place where we, like, we feel entitled. We feel like we deserve something. We feel like maybe we should get special treatment. Maybe God will give us kind of an out on this because I haven't been as bad as so-and-so. We're entitled to something before God. Or we feel like this. We feel like we can perform enough to gain God's favor. We like to achieve and to earn. Our our culture is set up around this. Like you do certain things, you receive. And so we like to perform, achieve. We want to buy our own way, make our own way in this world. And here's what it says when when you're the poor is that you can't make your own way in. You can't buy your way in. There's no way that you can come in that way. But glad-hearted, glad-hearted recipients of the grace of God realize their great need. Realize how poor they are and needy and desperate and broken they are. And they don't try to perform and they don't think they deserve or earn anything, but they just gladly receive with weak hands what Christ has offered. So for those who have received that grace, you have the inheritance. The whole thing. He says that the inheritance that you get is the inheritance of the firstborn son, which is Jesus Christ. And what does he not have? His inheritance is everything. And he says, you have that inheritance and you can't lose that inheritance. It never fades. In Jesus, you've received the fullness of this inheritance. By his poverty, you've become rich and it's never going away forevermore. And so there ought to be this grace-filled generosity fueled by the grace-filled generosity of Jesus. And that does so much more to motivate generous giving than anything else in the world. Guilt says, if you love God, you'll give. Or you love God if you give this much. Promises of blessing say, you'll receive from God if you give to God. And grace says, you've already received it all. It's yours and you can't lose it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. It doesn't fade away, and it's already yours. So live in response to that. Respond to that kind of grace. I mean, after seeing that kind of grace, doesn't it seem strange to put a percentage on it and say it's this percent of giving? Doesn't it seem strange to say this is the level of giving that we need to achieve? Doesn't it seem strange in response to the grace we've received from Jesus Christ? Our deepest needs have been met in Christ, and that frees us up to be the most generous people. All of our needs of safety, of comfort, of riches, of inheritance have all been met in Jesus Christ, and that frees us up 
different from any other people in all the world, to be the most generous people. And so how do we do that? How do we give? What instructions does Paul give to these Corinthians and to us in order to be grace-filled, generous givers? In verse 11, he says this, So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing of what you, out of what you have. So he says, finish it. They started it in 1 Corinthians, or maybe even before that when Paul visited him the first time, and he says, like, this has kind of been put on the back burner because you had all sorts of other problems, and you weren't thinking about it, but now you're walking in repentance, it seems like. You're being faithful to the ministry, being faithful to Paul. Now finish the task that you started. Let's not just let it die. Repentance should have started this process back up again. He says, finish doing it well. But each person, he says, is to give out of what they have, verse 11. He goes on, 12 and 13. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So there's this assumption even among these, these Corinthians there that, that most of the time what you wanted to do is when you gave a gift, it was for the rich because you wanted to give a good gift. Give something big and impressive. That was part of their culture. And so there was this assumption probably underlying some of this that the rich were to give. When he's calling for giving, he's like, all right, let's let the rich do that so it looks right. So it's the right kind of giving. But he is so clear here that giving isn't just for the rich. Verse 2, these Macedonians, they were extremely impoverished. They were very, very poor. It wasn't just for the rich. It was definitely for the poor there too. It's out of each of us. Out of each of us, what we have, he says, is proportionate to what we have. That's the kind of giving that Paul is calling for here. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is watching people give their offerings at the temple. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in small, two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say you, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Her gift, probably in, in relation to theirs, was relatively small. But Jesus points her gift out, and he says her gift is greater than they all, because the most important thing wasn't necessarily the amount of the gift, Obviously, there's some of of this heart behind it. What are you giving out of what kind of heart, a heart of faith or not? But he says, this widow, she puts in more. She wasn't hampered. She wasn't held back because she was poor. She trusted God and she gave these two coins. And I like what one pastor has said, that generosity is not hampered by lack of resources and it is not the sole prerogative of the wealthy. Generosity is not for the wealthy. We can make an argument probably that we're all wealthy here, but that doesn't even matter because Paul undercuts that too. It's not just for the wealthy. No one is held back in generosity by lack of resources because it's not about the amount. It's about the proportion. That's what he's getting at. That's what matters. And that's what reflects the heart. You might have somebody that has a ton of money that gives a ton of money more than all the poor could combined. But proportionally, it's really small. And so what's reflected in his heart may not be what's reflected in the poor's heart, giving a greater proportion to what he has. It's not about the amount. It's about the proportion that reflects our hearts. So giving is to be grace-filled. It's to be proportionate. It's to be supplying other people's needs. Verse 14, he says this, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. And as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Corinth, in comparison to these Macedonians and all those cities there, was probably wealthy in comparison. It was a, a major trading place. They had financial resources available to him and certainly they would have been in the church as well. Surely there were some people within the Corinthian church that were wealthy, that had money. And so they have some wealth, and what he's saying is that grace-filled generosity calls those with abundance to give to those who are in need. So he he uses this example of of saying that God always provides for his people. In verse 15, he's referencing how God provided for his people in the middle of a dry desert. And yet they had no lack. He's called them out of Egypt. They're in this desert where there's not water, there's not food. There's, there's a lot of problems if you're trying to make a huge amount of people walk through this place. And yet God supplied their need every day miraculously. 
But, but kind of what Paul is doing is he's showing a transition here. That's how God provided for them then. Here's how God's providing for his people now. It's not through manna coming from the sky. It's through giving an abundance to some of his people that they might share with others in need. That's how he's doing it now. And so maybe God has given us an abundance so that we could supply others' needs. We need to start thinking that way, thinking generously. How, do I have an abundance so I can share with someone in need? God gives that abundance, not to be used frivolously, but to be used to be given generously to those who might have need. Now, right now, there are Christian refugees, and this isn't on the news as much anymore, that are on the run, have been moved out of their home by ISIS. They've lost everything. They don't have a source of income anymore. They don't have a home. They don't have places to stay. They're staying in tents of places that are set up. And right now, $50 through open doors, $50 will feed a family for a month. A month. We might, some of us might spend $50 on lunch, and that will feed a whole family for a month. So maybe we like, we'll start to think generously. And begging for opportunities like these Macedonians, for opportunities to give to things like that opportunities to to relieve the saints because we have an abundance. Because of what God has given us, we we see need and we want to fill it. So are we begging for those kind of opportunities? Is that what our heart really desires? They, They begged for the favor of giving. And Paul says he wants them to desire to do it, to finish what they started. So some, if you're like me, still are hung up on this idea of like, well, how much do I need to give? Like, just tell me, Paul. Like, what's the percentage? I want to do that. So just give me the number so that I can be called generous and and have this grace-filled giving in my life. So just give me the number. Wouldn't that be simpler? Right? Is that not a fair question to ask the Scripture? Like, wouldn't it be simpler, God, if you just told us what it was? But aren't we glad that God doesn't have that kind of attitude? That God isn't like that, that he doesn't say, you know what, let's see, what's enough for these sinners? How about 10%, 20%? No, he gives of his life. He says, that's, that's, that's enough. My grace is, is surely sufficient. I've poured out my love for you, poured out my grace for you, lavished it upon you. He gave of his life, revealing this love, revealing this grace, showing it toward us, a sinful and rebellious world. And we're to respond to that. And the point is, one pastor says, there's, there's no answer. There's no one answer. The spirit of generosity that Paul is calling for is, is simply not something you can produce by establishing a standard. And so it's, it's good news that, that Paul doesn't say, you know what, it's 10%. You know what, it's, it's $20,000 a year. And that's good news that he didn't do that because that doesn't stir our hearts to generosity. It's not a response to the grace that we've received from Jesus. And so the question for us ought to be this. Not am I giving the right percentage, am I giving the right number, but this. Is my giving grace-filled? Is my giving generous? Is my giving in in a proper response to, to the grace that God has given me? Is my giving proportionate to what God has, has entrusted to me? And so we need to be thinking, like, all right, without in, putting any number on it, without putting any percentage on it, there's no pressure here. Think about your giving. Don't compare it to other people. Think about it and say, what does that reveal about me? What does our giving reveal about our hearts? Is it revealing generosity, that we are glad-hearted recipients, or is it revealing something different? So in response to the grace that God has given us, we're to give. And in response to that grace, is there any other way other than generosity? Is there any other way in response to what God has given us other than generosity? Now, Paul wants to take care to make sure their grace-filled, generous giving is handled well. And that's kind of what he starts in verse 16. You're like, holy cow, we're only halfway through. You've talked for a long time. Like, we're going to go fast. Hang in there. He says, thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. And with him we are sending the, the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know who it is, the passage doesn't say. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. 
Titus is leading the charge here, fulfilling this thing, making sure that this is carried out rightly. Titus is well known to them. He visited them after Paul's harsh letter and harsh visit. He carried this harsh letter with him, and he's sending Titus to them to fulfill this ministry because Titus desires this, but he's also sending this other brother. We don't know who it is. Faithful, entrusted by the churches. That's what these people are. These are people that not just Paul would approve, but the churches would approve as well. These are people that they can get behind. The Corinthian church can say, yeah, we'd send our money with them. We would entrust this with them. They're people of integrity who will live faithfully and faithfully carry out this task. And why does this matter? Well, he says in verse 20, he says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. There it is again, this priority on loving God, honoring God supremely, and other things following in its coattails. So the primary aim is what's honorable to God. Their primary aim is to honor God. But in honoring God, they also want to do what's right in the sight of man. So some of us would, would say and have this kind of attitude, like, well, who cares what man thinks? Who cares what the world thinks? Just do the right thing, right? And certainly, we want to obey God rather than men. And yes, what God thinks is is the priority. That's what's supreme. We want to love Him supremely. But we do need to seek to be above reproach and to aim not just at what's honorable before God, but what's honorable before men as well. Why? Because those are the people we're trying to minister to. Those are the people we're trying to reach. So when it's possible, we want to be above reproach in their sight. We're trying to reach them trying to minister to them, and so we want to do it in a way that looks like we're actually loving them. We shouldn't put up barriers where they don't need to be. The gospel's a barrier, that's a barrier enough. Let's not put up other barriers where they don't need to be. Let's aim to be honorable primarily before God and then before other people, because Paul is clear here. How they handle this task is important. Handling in a way that's honorable before God and before man is important. He says, he goes on in verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in this manner, in many manners, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So he's ordering things so that it's carried out with integrity, carried out faithfully. He's assuring them that their gift is in good hands, people that they would trust as well. And then he makes his final appeal to them in verse 24. So give proof. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. How can they give proof of their love? It's by giving financially. They can be like the Macedonian churches who even in their extreme poverty and their affliction, they have this abundance of joy that overflows into generous, grace-filled giving. They can be like Jesus who though he was rich, yet for their sake became poor so that they might be rich in his generous, grace-filled giving. The proof of their love will be seen in their grace-filled, generous giving to others. That's what he's saying. Prove that. Give proof to that. And so generous giving, once again, is tangible evidence that the grace of God is in our lives. And it gives proof of our love for God and our love for others. And so what does our giving reveal about us? Money may be one of those topics that you're just uncomfortable with talking about. And so if you're in a home group, it's, it might get a little uncomfortable, even more so than, than what we're doing this morning. But we, we should enter into this awkwardness and uncomfort. Because when we let the word of God speak into those areas, when we hear the words of our Christ spoken into those awkward, dark, sinful areas, hopefully we're hearing something much better than we ever thought we would. Sure, we hear that we've been selfish. Certainly, we hear that we could do better. Yes, we see where we've been stingy and sinful. But may we not miss hearing the grace of Jesus there as well who succeeded where we failed, who was rich but became poor on, on our behalf. He became poor. He, he gave generously that we, the poor, might be rich. He succeeds in, in gracious, grace-filled giving where we failed. And we are to trust in him. And so in your, in your lives right now, like as we, we talk about giving, as you even think about the home group you're going to tonight or this week to talk about this and what it means in your life and how your heart is revealing. There might be fear bubbling up inside of you. There might be guilt. There might be something being held back. 
And we need to remember this. Remember the grace of Jesus. Jesus is not smacking us with guilt here. The scripture is not trying to hammer us with with the guilt of how we're not generous. Although there might be guilt and although there might be sin there, the, the scripture is showing us something better. Showing how much grace he has lavished upon us showing how much love he's, he's proven to us, and he's calling us to something better. He's calling us to something more. He's forgiving us where we've failed. And so let's follow him. Let's follow him in generous, grace-filled giving. Would you pray with me? I just want to give us a second to reflect and to confess sin before God, to thank God for his generous giving of himself. Father God, I, I, I imagine that some people are like me, that they've felt the sting of approaching this topic. Because if we're honest, oftentimes when we start talking about giving and money, there's this idol that is revealed in our lives, that we find comfort and security Identity in our financial statements, in our bank accounts, in our net worth. And God, may we feel that sting rightly and may it drive us, may it not be this worldly grief that only leads to death, but may it be this godly grief that drives us to repentance. And may we be propelled forward, not by the sense of guilt for how we've failed, but by this overwhelming grace that we've received. And God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, became poor so that he might make many rich, may that grace fuel us as a body of believers to be generous in our lives financially, to give in a way that would show the great grace that we've received. And God, may we be known as a people who are generous, grace-filled givers because we love you supremely. And God, may that be the end of our generous giving that you, O oh God, would be honored among the earth. Do it in our lives so that you might be honored. Amen.